Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage Heritage's Vice President of the Institute for Faith, Community, and Opportunity, and the Joseph C. and Elizabeth A. Anderlich Fellow, Jennifer Marshall. Good morning, everyone. I am truly impressed to see such a crowd here on time on such a uh, dreaded wintry mixed day in Washington, D.C. Thank you for making it here. Thank you to all of you who are joining us online from the comfort of your own home or office. Um, and these hearty folks here have, have joined us in person. We're thrilled with that. Well, we have been doing this as an annual gathering for about a half decade here at the Heritage Foundation to bring together those of us who are not satisfied with the approach that we're taking to poverty in America. We're motivated by a common conviction that the status quo has not done justice to our neighbors in need. Too often, anti-poverty efforts have focused only on material problems, reducing people to their material needs. And so the perennial response has been that we need more federal programs and more federal spending. Well, now we've had more than a half century of this approach, and too many Americans are still trapped in poverty and dependence, falling far short of their aspirations and potential. With such a track record, we cannot point to the federal welfare state and say that through it, we, are, we have done our duty to serve our neighbors in need. We cannot be satisfied with the status quo, and that's why we're here today. So what would an anti-poverty approach look like that does justice to human dignity? It would go much deeper than merely material welfare. Effective compassion addresses the needs of the whole person, including the material, indeed, but extending to relational needs for community, and spiritual needs that we all have to find meaning and purpose in life. An anti-poverty approach that does justice to human dignity can't be reduced to public assistance programs. It calls on all of us to respond to the needs of those around us in ways that address the whole person relationally. It requires families, churches, employers, and nonprofit groups, every sector of society, to work together to create communities that do not let neighbors who fall on hard times fall through the cracks. And when public welfare aid is involved, this anti-poverty approach forces us to consider the character of that assistance. Does it implicitly admit or deny that people are more than their material needs? Does it encourage or discourage flourishing in the whole person and the whole community? 
An effective anti-poverty approach must also take stock of the broad range of issues that touch on the question of poverty, from health care to education to family to jobs. So our anti-poverty forum today takes this holistic approach, considering the needs of the whole person, convinced of the responsibility of society as a whole, working through every sector, not just public policy, and concerned with the conditions created by policy as a whole, and whether those are contributing to the well-being of all members of society. Today, we are honored to have all of you here today. Many of you sitting in the audience could be up here sharing your insights from your experience fighting poverty across this country. We have a number of Capitol Hill and administration officials involved in crafting federal policy uh, on these questions. Uh, we have colleagues from other national and state-level think tanks in the room doing very important work. We're also joined by a number of state welfare secretaries. I want to welcome Jason Turner and the Secretary's Innovation Group for uh, gathering you all here today. Thanks for traveling in from across the country. We also have a number of folks who are working directly to serve those in need, whether it's through foster care and adoption, shelters for the homeless, treatment for those who are addicted to substances, uh, and the list goes on. There are so many ways that those of you in the audience are representing associations of these uh, of folks who are directly serving those in need or doing that direct service yourself. You all, this audience, represent a cross-section of the many facets of our responsibility to address poverty as a whole society. And at the Heritage Foundation, we do not think that we can have an, anti, an adequate anti-poverty approach that does not engage all of these sectors. So during the course of the day, we will cover a range of issues from health care to the dignity of work to the importance of maintaining freedom to serve on the basis of faith. Welcome, everyone. At this point in the agenda, I'm scheduled to introduce to you the president of the Heritage Foundation and my boss, Kay Coles-James. Kay was very much looking forward to being here today with all of you because she's extremely passionate about this set of issues. But I regret to tell you that she's uh, taken ill this week and is not going to be able to be uh, with us because of that. I am, however, going to go ahead and introduce her to you um, because I want you to know how personally she is committed to uh, this cause of overcoming poverty in America and so that you can hear directly from her in some clips we've taken from recent interviews where she talks about her passion for this set of issues and her outlook on, uh, on these questions. And we'll play that in just a moment. I've been describing a holistic anti-poverty approach. Kay has lived this. Her life and her career have engaged every aspect of this anti-poverty puzzle, from issues of family to education to health care to training and job preparation uh, to welfare reform. Kay's worked at the state, local, federal level, including in two presidential administrations. She has served dozens of uh, corporate and nonprofit organizations. She founded the Gloucester Institute to train college-age leaders in the African-American community. Most important, she would say, Kay is the wife of Charles and a mother of three and a grandmother to five. Kay is driven to find solutions. She's passionate about communicating them in ways that tap the aspirations of everyone, regardless of background or ideology. But you should hear her tell about her passion for these issues herself. So please direct your attention to the screens as we watch this short video. I love this country 
I love my family. And that's why I get up every single day and go to work. I came from a welfare mom. Mm. I came from a broken home, a dad who was absent. And the reason that's important is because when I began to talk about welfare reform, I, I, I had to, to grow out of failing schools and, and learn. So for me, policy isn't just about the white papers that we produce, mm -hmm. but it's what's behind those papers, the lives of people that can be changed with the excellent policy that we produce here. Operating in this town, it's more about people and people's lives, and it's not simply about policy and battles and fighting ideological wars. Kay Coles-James is talking about the real-life consequences of policy struggles in Washington. James grew up in public housing in Southern Virginia. Her mom was on welfare. My definition of a conservative is someone who has the audacity to believe what their grandmother taught them. Such as? not relying on government or anyone else, by the way, to, uh, to clear the path for you. She was in junior high in the early 60s when she was chosen to help integrate her school. We had to walk past dogs and angry parents and shouting people, and uh, it, it was a very traumatic period. And I've been a fighter all my life. That I was the Secretary of Health in Virginia and did welfare reform there the year before Bill Clinton did it nationally. And it was fascinating to me to see how this worked out uh, in the area of politics. Because we did welfare in Virginia that was far less restricted than what happened at the national level. And yet I was harming poor people and Bill Clinton was the first black president. And when I talk to people who are in the community and who desperately need those resources, uh, they want to make sure that they are protected for the folks who really need it and not those who, who actually don't. I don't know any American that doesn't want a poor kid or a hungry kid fed. So let's, let's take that off the table. I mean, that's just so much rhetoric. Um, and I also know that there are individuals who truly believe that there are folks who are on those programs that are robbing and sapping those programs of resources and keeping them away from truly needy people. So let's sort that out. Um, we also know that when there... How do you, tell me, how, how do you sort that out? Well, you know, you it's interesting when there are work requirements, uh, it, it, how many people rotate off right at that time. Uh, so we've got to build incentives into the programs to make people become self-sufficient and independent. We don't want to build programs that make people dependent for life. Um, I, I came out of a family who, who, you know, who benefited from that safety net. So I want that safety net there, and I want it there for the truly needy. But I don't want to see generation after generation of people who uh, don't take advantage of or don't know how to take advantage of the opportunities that this country has.
being here in person today, but I think that gives you a good taste of her interest and enthusiasm for the project that we're about here today. And she will be eager to join us on future occasions when we have opportunity to talk about these questions again. Uh, now I would like to transition to our first panel. One of the major areas in which we cannot be satisfied with the status quo anti-poverty approach is in healthcare. Medicaid, the government health care program for low-income Americans, offers limited choice with low-quality outcomes. At the same time, anxiety has spread so that many more Americans fear that they are just one crisis away from lacking access to adequate health uh, options for their needs. So given this level of national anxiety over health care and the urgency for finding solutions to it, we're very glad to have with us today some of the leading minds who are charting a better way forward. And I, to moderate our panel on health care today is Marie Fishpaw, uh, Director of Domestic Policy here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Marie, my colleague, oversees our work on health care and welfare. She served as Deputy Assistant to Vice President Dick Cheney in the White House during the Bush administration. And has, she's, she's also worked on Capitol Hill as a senior staff member in the U.S. Uh, House Committee on Energy and Commerce. Marie's going to introduce our panelists and lead them in a discussion of better answers to, to our health care anxiety as a nation. Marie, over to you. Thanks, Jen. We have an amazing panel today. We're really lucky to hear from them. Um, we have Ovik Roy, who is the president and co-founder of the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity. And he has come to healthcare policy through a really interesting route. He studied um, medicine at Yale, went on to a, a variety of uh, middle of careers at things like Bain Consulting. And then it looks like through personal interest, um, began really examining our healthcare system. And he wrote the book, on Medicaid called um, How Medicaid Fails the Poor, and exposes how Medicaid as a program um, does not help the poor see the doctors that they need to see, among other things. And so he has served as a presidential advisor to three presidential candidates, and he's put forth um, a lot of really innovative policy initiatives, including one on how to eliminate uh, persistent poverty. And he, his, he described himself as a passionate advocate of the idea that conservative policies can help um, bring quality health care to every American. And then we have Yuval, who is um, one of the, he is the vice president and Hertog fellow of Ethics and Public Policy Center. He is um, one of the nation's, in my view, most creative thinkers on some of the most pressing questions of our time. He too has served um, in, the, in the Bush administration uh, as a senior policymaker. Uh, looking at health care and other issues. And uh, he has, his most recent book is called uh, The Fractured Republic, Renewing America's Social Contract in the Age of Individualism. And then we have Nina, who is a senior research fellow at Heritage. Uh, her most recent position in the administration was at HHS with, um, as a counselor to Secretary Price. And she has spent years studying the current ways that the U.S. government is helping those in poverty access care, and she is known as a champion for um, the importance of patient and family control over health care decisions. So join me in welcoming them to, uh, to the stage today. Okay, so we just had an election, <laughs> and it exposed... Um, one of the main policy things that exposed was that health care remains an issue um, of interest to everybody. And it's a majority of Americans report feeling <clears throat> anxious, both about the ability to get care when they need it, 
but also their ability to, af to afford care if something bad should happen. And so this is a, this is a fear not just for people with low incomes. It's, it's increasingly a fear for um, many Americans that, uh, that we're just one crisis away, as Jen said, of losing access to the care that we need. And we've seen that both the left and the right agree that this status quo is not working, but they have, we have different approaches in how we might solve uh, the situation and go to the next level in our healthcare. And so regardless, what's gonna happen, regardless of which side will own the conversation, Congress is going to need to act. All three of you have been involved in developing a conservative alternative and vision. Um, and so I'm going to uh, start by asking you all to walk us through why we, what's driving this national anxiety and why do we need a conservative alternative and answer to that anxiety. All right. Well, thanks, Maria. Thank you to, to Heritage, really, for, for having this discussion, for taking up this question in the way that only Heritage can, and for, and for putting healthcare in this context of thinking and talking about poverty. I think the way you put the question is right, which is to say this is about anxiety. And that's also part of the way that it really connects to questions of poverty and fighting poverty. Healthcare concerns are at the core of the anxiety that many lower-income Americans feel. It's one of the ways that people have a sense that what they have could fall apart, especially if they don't have much to fall back on. And the way that we saw the healthcare debate come up in the last election really highlighted that. It was fundamentally a debate about anxiety. At the end of the day, the way in which the Democrats pressed the issue on Republicans was to say that Republicans were not willing to protect people with pre-existing conditions, people who were sick, and who might need help from the healthcare system and so might need access to insurance coverage. I think the argument they actually made was a dishonest argument, ultimately. Uh, Republicans, in fact, had proposed changes to the architecture of Obamacare um, that would still protect people with pre-existing conditions. And when they were making the healthcare uh, arguments at the beginning of 2017, they made sure to make that clear. By the time the 2018 election had gotten started, Republican members of Congress had fallen back to the place where they're comfortable, which is to know nothing and say nothing about health care. And so, frankly, they didn't answer the charge that they had nothing to say uh, and nothing to offer people with pre-existing conditions. It simply isn't true. But ultimately, the power of that issue, the power of that argument, should help us see that really at the core of the health care debate are concerns about anxiety, are concerns that you will find yourself in a situation where you have a health crisis and you're not able to find the help you need. Or even more of a worry for many Americans, someone in your family has a health problem and you don't have the resources to give them the help. That obviously connects to the poverty question. It also obviously connects to larger anxieties. And it's a very powerful political issue. The, the important thing to see about that kind of concern is that the way to help people who feel that sort of anxiety, and this is another connection between the healthcare debate and the broader uh, questions of fighting poverty that have brought us together today, the way to help people is to empower them. The way to help people is not just to provide them with resources, but to give them real power to choose and to act, to provide them with the ability to function for themselves as decision makers. And I think that's a key difference between how the, the right and the left tend to think about healthcare. The issue is not just, is there enough money on the table? The issue is, are we allowing people to make choices and to make judgments for themselves about what's right for them and their families? I think that's what sets the conservative uh, alternative apart from the way that the left has tried to think about health care. We can talk about that alternative, but it, it seems to me that this 
discussion belongs in a broader discussion of, of fighting poverty because it is ultimately about what do we have to offer people who need help? Do we offer them just money on the table and we'll tell you what to do with it? Or do we offer them real power to function as citizens and as consumers in our free economy and get the benefits of it that the rest of the country has? Thank you. So um, before we dive into conservative solution ideas, Ovik, you literally wrote the book on how our current system is failing the poor. Um, could you help us think about, um, help us understand why that is and, and what, what's driving that problem? Well, first of all, just let me echo what you've all said to thank Heritage for organizing this event. Uh, and also, for those of you who aren't familiar with my organization, the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity, we were founded in 2016, uh, and we focus exclusively on free market ideas that make a significant impact on Americans whose incomes or wealth are below the U.S. median. Most of the people in the free market movement, we all understand that free markets are the only thing that have lifted people out of poverty over the course of history. And our goal is to establish that in the context of, of American public policy. And we launched in 2016 with a big white paper on health care reform called Transcending Obamacare. And Medicaid is, is a big focus uh, of that paper. And I, I think, first of all, let me just say that, that I think you've all, both you and you've all, uh, Maria, have fo emphasized one thing that's really important here, that we often think about health care reform as about access to health care. It's also a major issue of uh, economic and financial security. So if you think about a person who um, gets hit by a bus or has a car accident and uh, is disabled for a while and loses their job and is all of a sudden out of the workforce and therefore doesn't have employer-sponsored insurance um, and yet maybe not be eligible yet for a, a, you know government subsidies or anything like that, what happens to that individual, right? Uh, or think of yourself maybe as the caretaker of a person in that situation where your financial burdens have gone up because maybe uh, you're the, a spouse of somebody who is, who's lost uh, his or her job and, and, and lost the ability to function in the workforce. All of a sudden, your financial security, your economic security, your economic future is dramatically affected. And you may actually have access to health care. You may actually be able to see a doctor in some capacity. But your economic uh, situation is extremely impaired. So it's very important for us to understand the connection between the high cost of American health care and the economic insecurity that's associated with the high cost of American health care. So there are the two, the two biggest problems with our, our health care system come from the same place, that health care is too expensive in America. And that affects both just our fiscal situation where we're spending way too much money, an unsustainable amount on health care in terms of government spending, and also for individuals who struggle to afford health care. So the promise of Medicaid is that it will try to address this, right? It, it you know, it, the one thing that Medicaid has been shown to do consistently is that uh, if you are in the in the Medicaid program, your medical bills get paid. So if you if you do get hit by a bus, you 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 have a car accident, you have a stroke, and you go to the hospital, those bills are getting paid by Medicaid. And so for you as the enrollee, that uh, that is at least something. But the problem with Medicaid is that. Uh, because of the way it was designed very, in a very slapdash fashion in 1965 as an afterthought to the great society legislation that created Medicare, uh, the program has never really worked. Uh, we talk about how Obamacare will collapse under its own weight. Medicaid has been collapsing under its own weight since 1965. It still happens to be on the books and has never really been changed. And what, what, is, it, what is it that's wrong with Medicaid 
is that because it's jointly run by the states and the federal government, it's basically run by no one. You know, the, the old uh, adage about too many uh, cooks spoil the broth, right? And so states can't borrow money from China. With Medicare, Medicare works because we borrow money from China to fund all the deficits in the Medicare program. States don't have the ability to issue treasury bonds. And so states generally have to have balanced budgets. And so as Medicaid's per person's costs have skyrocketed, states don't have the ability, like the U.S. government, to just borrow money to deal with it. So what do they do? They do several things. They fund uh, roads and schools and firemen a little bit less to pay Medicaid more. They, uh, they can't, by law, the federal law, the Medicaid law, prevents states from charging lower-income people more copays, higher copays, or having real robust work requirements. They're, the work requirements that we're talking about in Medicaid are relatively modest. Um, what, what you basically can do is pay doctors and hospitals less to provide the same amount of care. And over time, what that's created is a, a, a kind of arbitrage where what Medicaid pays doctors to see a patient what private insurers pay to see a doctor uh, uh, to be a, to see, pay a doctor to see a patient are very different, and so if you're a busy a doctor with a busy practice, particularly a primary care physician, you uh, you ha don't have an incentive to see Medicaid patients. You have an incentive to see patients who are a with regular private insurance and maybe to a lesser degree patients with Medicare, uh, but patients with Medicaid are at the bottom of the totem pole in that regard. And so what ends up happening is you have a card that says you have health insurance, and yes, if you get hit by a bus, those medical bills will be paid. But a lot of people who are lower income, they have chronic health care needs where they need to be seeing a primary care doctor more regularly. And they don't often because it's extremely hard to find primary care doctor who will see you on a consistent basis because of the fact that Medicaid pays so much less. And, and that problem, it's a problem today. It's a problem that's only going to get worse as more and more people are on Medicaid and uh, the states are burdened with trying to make that system work when they can't issue treasury bonds. So that's a huge problem, um, but it ultimately stems from not just the problems with Medicaid, but the problems with the high cost of American health care, which go far beyond Medicaid, and are really something that, uh, that I think in the past conservatives have had the attitude, well, that's just the market. The market is telling us that health care is expensive. That's not true. The reason why American healthcare is more expensive than healthcare in any, anywhere else in the world is not because of the market. It's because of government policy, particularly federal policy. Here's an amazing statistic for you. Government spending on healthcare per capita in the United States is higher than all but two other countries in the world. Meaning like people talk about single payer. We spend enough public spending today to theoretically cover every single person in the country. We don't because our system is so profoundly inefficient that actually we have tens of millions of people uninsured despite the fact that we're spending literally trillions of dollars a year trying to subsidize health insurance for people. So these are huge problems that not only we have to solve to make sure that people have access to health coverage and health care, but so that other, uh, other important domestic priorities can also be funded. If there's anything else about public assistance that you care about, it's being squeezed because of the rising cost of health care and health care spending. So... Our current approach isn't working for the people who are in the program. That's um, not working for the taxpayer because we're shoveling a lot of money out the door for a, a program that doctors don't want to participate in. And the left solution to some of the dynamics you're talking about is to put all of us and to raise all of our taxes into a similar broken program, which I suppose they argue will be fixed if only government is more in charge. 
Nina, you have spent a lot of time um, thinking about what, what's next, um, what's a better direction. And you were a, a, a significant um, uh, designer of the healthcare choices proposal, which is an alternative vision that conservatives have put together uh, to answer the left's um, call for more government and to answer the national anxiety that we have um, about the, that all of us have, um, not just not just the, so it would help both the, those in poverty today and those of us who fear uh, dipping into that situation. Well, um, <clears throat> first, a little bit about the process. I think not just myself, but Ovik and Yuval and Marie, and there were lots of people who came together after a little bit of background, I guess, on on that process. Um, after the Senate failed to pass a replace proposal, you know, a lot of people were down and out, but. You know, those people who've been involved in healthcare policy for a long time realize we can't give up. We can't just put our hands up and say, okay, we'll move on. So a group pulled themselves together um, and started meeting regularly to start talking about what is a conservative alternative? How can we actually pull something together, take what was left on the floor of the Senate, pull it together, make improvements to it, and find a path forward and revive this effort because the status quo, as already been pointing out, is actually not working. And someone's going to have to do something, and if not us, then who? Um, right now we know what the alternative is. We want to find um, a better alternative for our side. So the group met very regularly since, I guess that was um, 2017, is that right? Um, on a regular basis to pull together what was kind of seen as a consensus plan. And this was not a plan that was just from Washington. This group of people included national leaders, national health care experts, uh, state experts, state policy leaders, um, as well as grassroots people, just everyday Americans who felt like this Congress fell short of the promise that they said that they would replace Obamacare. So the group kept meeting, and we kind of came up with um, a proposal that has really taken shape. Over 90, pe 90 individuals from various organizations have signed on to say they support the framework of what this is. And there are three main pieces, and really that not only for America as a whole of why it's going to fix, how it can fix our healthcare system, but also how it really helps the poor. Because as Marie said, this is not just about poverty and those in poverty, but looking at healthcare as a whole. So three main areas. Um, first, I would say that the whole framework, and one of the reasons why I was at HHS, but when I came back, um, was in, started to engage more on this on this effort. And the thing that made it so different for me from other things I had heard is that it was all focused and organized around putting the patient at the center of the solution. Too often, all the other policy solutions were all about process. Well, let's fix the process for how Obamacare is being run. Let's just tap into making the system work better. This really said, let's look at it from the, from the standpoint of the patient, and how can we actually make sure that the patient or the person is who we're trying to solve the health care um, problems for. So that was probably one of the biggest framing issues that I thought was very effective and I thought really gets at the heart of what we're trying to do with health care reform. So three main areas. The first is um, it really gives the patients, and in particular low-income people, a voice in their health care by giving them choices, which they don't have today. Under the Affordable Care Act today, the way it was authored or it was designed is to say, okay, we're going to just cut the population by income levels, and then we're going to dump you into a program based on your income level. And if you're below 138% of poverty, we're saying you're going to be in the Medicaid program. 
You don't have a choice if you want to go into the private market and get assistance. You don't have a choice if there's something better for you out there. You're going to get the Medicaid program. If you're between 138% of poverty and 400, we're going to give you a subsidy. But we're going to tell you that you have to use that subsidy in what a government-run kind of marketplace, um, which is really not a market at all if the government's running it, um, a, a really a very restricted um, system of buying health insurance. And then those above 400 get no assistance, um, but have to pay the price for whatever the government is regulating for them. So it was a very disjointed and, and a patchwork approach for fig figuring out how to help the, um, help the healthcare system. So under the healthcare choices proposal, we kind of took a different approach to say, you know what? People should have choices. Low-income people should have choices. Middle-class Americans should have choices. And so the whole structure um, is designed around giving people the ability to take the money whatever assistance they might get under the, um, under the health care proposal today, and let them apply that subsidy where they think is most needed. So if you're on Medicaid, you're going to be able to take those dollars and go out to a plate, use those dollars to buy the private health insurance that you might like. Why is that important? I think as Ovik already pointed out, many poor people today can't find access to a specialist or may find it difficult to find a doctor to see their child or a pediatrician. These are the things that, that the Medicaid program, when you're locked into one option, really create a barrier for people to get the care that they need. So giving these low-income families the option to say, I, I want to help my kids. I want to make sure we have access to health care. I think I can buy a private health insurance plan that will provide them greater um, access to care that they need. The second area that it focuses on is it lets the states um, begin, it gives the states the tools to design programs that meet the needs of their state, um, their citizens in their state, rather than what we have, which is a one-size-fits-all federal solution. Under Obamacare, again, the federal government pretty much preempted all state rules and regulations and said, okay, we know what's best for health care. We're going to set the policies in Washington, and then we'll just have the states kind of implement what we have designed. That really has not worked. Um, and what you have is states constrained by the options that the Obamacare has given them, and they don't have the flexibility to develop policies. You see this at the state level. I know we have state leaders here have to work through a waiver process and hope that Washington gives them some flexibility within the statute. But the statute itself is so narrow and so restrictive that flexibility is only really giving you some options on the sides. So the healthcare choices proposal says, okay, let's take the resources that we have that are floating in the Obamacare plan today and let's give them to the states and then remove these, these requirements and allow the states to start developing plans that meet the needs that are best suited in their state. This is going to help low-income people in particular. What we know now in the Medicaid program, as I said, right now you get Medicaid. You have to live by the Medicaid requirements. The states have to run the program as Medicaid. But under this program, the states could say, we're going to use these dollars and develop a program that, bet, that, that meets the needs of the people on the program. And by the way, the Medicaid program is not one homogeneous group. Poor people are not one homogeneous kind of people. We all have different needs. They all have different um, um, uh, issues that they're trying to handle. And each of them have to figure out a be the best way to get the care that you need. A disabled person has different health care needs than a childless adult who's just low income. A pregnant woman has different needs than a disabled po person on disability. We have a lot of these issues that, are, uh, that make the Medicaid program far more complicated. And again, having the Medicaid program that's designed to try to fit everyone in a one-shop 
program doesn't really meet the needs of those, um, those people. So this would allow the states to develop programs to say, we want to treat uh, childless adults a little bit different than we want to treat the pregnant women in our Medicaid program. It really gives them the flexibility. And then the last piece of it um, is it begins to remove some of the costly regulations that are pricing people out of the healthcare market today. Obamacare's regulation has proven to, set, to raise the cost of healthcare for everyone. Those with subsidies might not feel the pain of it, but those that don't have subsidies are really paying the full freight of this. Why does this matter for low-income people, you'd say? Well, who cares? I mean, we've got Medicaid and we've got the other thing if coverage is expensive. At the end of the day, a healthy and affordable marketplace is where we all want to have our health insurance in the private market. If we don't have an alternative that is viable for low-income people to move into, then we are kind of stuck in the status quo to say our safety net is going to be stretched and pulled because the market itself is only affordable to a very few number of people. We need to make sure that the policies and the regulations allow the marketplace to flourish and to be affordable so that just like buying a cell phone, it's not regulated only to the very wealthy. Everyday Americans have a lot, have, are able to participate in the marketplace for a lot of, um, a lot of what we have today, and we should have health care the same way. So um, it, cover, it sounds like it covers a lot, but it really only scratches the surface. So healthcare, as I've, I've told um, our group and I've told many other people, we have a long way to go to fix the healthcare system today. We've got to dig ourselves out of what happened under um, the Affordable Care Act, but we have a lot more that needs to get done to really create a vibrant and healthy marketplace where everyone can participate and the safety net begins to shrink rather than expand. So this is a really great um, effort that folks have been involved in, and I think it's really going to revive the interest in trying to fix what's wrong with the healthcare system. But as conservatives in particular, we need to be committed to this for the long haul. This is not something that can get done with one piece of legislation, and we've said we've solved healthcare. This is a long commitment to making sure that we're empowering the patients and designing policies that will actually help not only low-income people, but help the healthcare system as a whole. Yeah. Thank you, Nina. So I'm going to open up to questions in just a minute, but um, I'd like you all to help us. So help, help people think about how this relates to the, the practical reality we find ourselves in right now. Um, we have uh, a, le a far left that is pushing more of the failed government solutions. We have a moderate um, middle who is pushing, I guess, solidifying our current government mm -hmm. offerings. Um, and we have this idea on the right. Um, help, help us think about what to expect in the near term. What's the election? What, what kind of groundwork are we walking into? Yeah. I, I think part of what we see in the healthcare debate very often is, and we see this too in the broader debates about poverty and social programs in general, is a confusion of means and ends. Is the argument that if you're not for this program, then you're not for helping the people this program says it's helping. And a lot of times we as conservatives have to fight that by, by again and again making the argument this program is not helping the people it is said to be helping. Uh, and so we have to begin by showing that a lot of our social programs are not designed in a way that takes account of how our economy works and of what the circumstances of people in poverty really are. That's very true in healthcare, where right now there's an argument for a kind of single-payer approach on the left that is presented as an argument for Medicare for All that basically says, we've got this program, this program is the way to do health care, and so we need to apply it to everybody. And universality is made equivalent to compassion or something, right? I, I, 
the, the, when you step back and look at the American healthcare system, Medicare is a key driver of the problem. Medicare is a driver of inefficiency. It's, it, it's one of the main reasons why healthcare costs are so out of control. Healthcare providers are not very happy with Medicare. It's, it's a system of price controls that constrains what they can do. And the argument we're hearing from Democrats is, let's take that and put everybody in that. That is not a solution to the problem. That is a way of expanding the problem so that it affects more people. If we need to solve the problem, we've got to think about what it actually involves. And that means, again, as Nina says, understanding the complexity, the intricacies of the circumstances people in our healthcare system face. It's not an easy argument to make. It is easier to say, let's just give everybody everything for free. The trouble is that, unfortunately, is impossible. And it creates problems for a healthcare system that makes access harder, not easier, that makes coverage of lower quality, not higher quality. And we simply have to make the case that's rooted in the realities of how healthcare works and how healthcare financing works that says what the system needs is to allow people better access as consumers to a functional market. That ultimately is the case we have to make to the public. And look, we've got a long way to go. As Nina says, we've got a long way to go. I mean, we have to understand that what's happened in the past few years has been a step backward. Obamacare has decimated the individual market. It is, so even just two years ago, in the middle of 2016, you had 20% more people in the individual market than we have now. The market has been squeezed, and most of those people have been pushed into Medicaid, which, as Ovik says, is not a functional way to provide them uh, with actual access to actual care. So we've got a big hole to dig ourselves out of. And then we've got an underlying problem to solve, a system that is not functional and that is not working in a way that can endure given fiscal realities and given people's health care needs. So I, I think ultimately conservatives have to s speak to the public in terms of the real circumstances people face and offer people choices, options that are a good match for the realities they confront. It's not easy. There's a reason why Republican politicians run away from this issue. It's not a simple matter, but it's an enormous problem people face. It's a huge source of anxiety, and it is an area where our basic approach to solving problems, which is from the bottom up by allowing people's choices to shape larger systems, can solve a huge problem for the country. So it's a challenge we've got to take up. Thank you. Can I add something sure. to that? You know, we talk a lot about, uh, in healthcare circles, about 2017, what went wrong, why did Republicans fail to repeal and replace Obamacare. For me, I would argue that the reason is, is quite simple. It's that when it comes to healthcare, and almost uniquely when it comes to healthcare, conservatives have accepted the left-wing narrative that the only way for more people to have health insurance is for the government to be more involved in the healthcare system. Most conservatives would say, if you ask them, do you think there needs to be more government so that every American has a cell phone? No one would raise their hand. If I ask you, do you think there needs to be more government as conservatives so that every American has a job? I think almost no one would raise their hand, right? But somehow when it comes to health care, we've accepted this narrative that the only way to ensure that every American has health insurance and the economic security that comes with health insurance is through more government. And that leads to a mentality which drove the di discussion about health reform in 2017 in which you, you had a lot of Republicans explicitly saying that the fact that the Republican bill was scored by the Congressional Budget Office as leading to 22 million fewer people having health insurance, that that was a feature, not a bug. 
You know, I'd go to people when I, you know, uh, uh, brief policymakers, and they'd tell, tell me, well, it's okay that the Republican bill covers 22 million less, fewer people because um, it's not the federal government's job to ensure that Americans have health insurance. And what that, I understand that as an, as an instinct, but the problem with that is that it's, the reason why 50 million people in America don't have health insurance or did before the ACA is because of federal policy. It's federal policy that has made health insurance unaffordable for tens of millions of Americans. And so, yes, it is our job to address that problem. It is our job to correct the inequities and inefficiencies that particularly lead to lower-income individuals not having that economic security. And we as a movement should embrace that, that progressive policy outcome that every American should be able to find affordable health insurance. And if we do that, if we embrace that principle and show how choice and competition and freedom can achieve that principle, that policy outcome, better than single-payer health care, say, that's how we're going to win. And the reason we don't win when it comes to health care debates is because we retreat from that. We implicitly believe that the left is right, that the only way for everyone to have health insurance is to do it through more government. Instead of trusting people to make the right decisions for them. Can I add something as well? I think we also have a conflict, or not we, but I think there's a conflict between the policy and reality moving forward, and I think that gives us great hope. So the issue is between socialism, which is what the left is promoting, versus what we have, which is a real consumerism system. And if you look at what, they're, what, what those on the left are arguing is exactly what you said. It is, let's have government do more. Obamacare you know, did preempt health care um, at the state level. They said we can regulate it better at the federal level. Now we have liberals and progressives saying, let's double down and make that even more power to Washington. Let's really federalize the health care system completely. Um, and they think that we can just create a mega one-size-fits-all program in Washington. We can regulate it. We can administrate it. We can um, design rules and guidance and all this. And we can figure it out behind the scenes at the HHS. And then we can implement a perfect system, which might look good on a screen. But in reality, we are totally not in that world today. If you look at what you see in technology and how you see consumerism in healthcare taking shape, we are moving more towards an individualized healthcare system today than we've ever been before. You look at the television today, you see the 23andMe ads all the time. It used to be to see like who your ancestors are. Now it's, t it's talking about what kind of healthcare you need to have and what kind of your, is your DNA unique to what your, your problems are going to be moving forward. What kind of exercise do you need? I've seen one of those ads. You look at the medical technology, the devices that people have today as individuals where they can plug something on the back of their phone and monitor their heart rates. How in the world, in, or, or, or prescription medications to treat, to treat and cure cancer because of your individual DNA, not yours, but yours. This is the world we're living in. This is the reality. And this is why I think the progressive's approach is so out of step and out of date. I don't know how you put the genie back in the bottle. I don't know how you would have a federal government be able to design a program that it continues to allow that kind of innovation. That's happening, and I don't think can actually be stifled um, in a way that I think that the American people would, would be satisfied with. So I'm, I'm actually hopeful that our solutions are the ones that are going to allow that kind of an environment to really um, create a consumer-based system and where I think the progressives' approach of socialized medicine and single-payer and you name it are going to fall flat. It might sound good on a bumper sticker, but it doesn't work in reality. 
Thank you. <clears throat> I'm going to open this up to questions from the audience. Um, Meridian, you look ready to go. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Thank you. Um, Ovik, you mentioned that we're coming off of two years that are really frustrating where we had a Republican majority and nothing got done on health care. Um, I'm curious, though, how we use these next two years uh, to strategically move toward the goals that you all were just talking about. Yeah, a great question. Um, and I, I think the answer is is pretty similar in that uh, we should be committing ourselves to achieving progressive policy outcomes through conservative means. We should be talking about embracing the cause of affordable health insurance and health care for every American. And how do we do that in a bipartisan context? There are several things that we can work on uh, in, in a bipartisan Congress. Uh, the high cost of prescription drugs. Again, the, the conventional wisdom in conservative circles for decades was the reason why we have the highest prescription drug prices in the world is because of markets. That's absolutely not true. It's, again, federal policy that is the reason that markets have been distorted such that uh, American prescription drug prices in some cases are so high. In other cases, actually, American prescription drug prices are actually much lower than other countries. We don't talk about that enough. But in the cases where it's high, it's almost always because of federal policy. Another big area, even bigger than prescription drug prices, is the high cost of hospital care. Uh, the cost of hospital care, the average day spent in an American hospital costs five times as much as the average day spent in a hospital in Europe or Canada or Australia. And that's not because we're doing five times as much stuff to the patient. It's because the hospital is charging five times the price. And again, that's not because of markets. That's because of the absence of markets. In particular, it's because more and more we're moving to a system in which hospitals have regional monopolies where because they have no competition, they can charge extremely high prices and insurers don't have the ability to get that hospital to compete with another hospital to keep prices down. So there's a lot we can do on the high cost of hospital care, the high cost of prescription drugs, the high cost of health care in general, and the high cost of insurance due to Obamacare regulations and other regulations. And I think uh, a message and, and a, an agenda that's really focused on the low, driving down the cost of health care is one that can attract democratic support in, in many cases, not maybe in all. And obviously, there are going to be certain things where, say, a Bernie Sanders is never going to agree with a guy like me about, about what to do about health care reform. But there, I think there's, there's more agreement about some of these issues around the high cost of health care than we might believe. And I think I, will, I want to credit the Trump administration because the Trump administration is trying to tackle some of these issues. They have, in particular have a really uh, impressive, in my view, initiative on the high cost of prescription drugs that in general is tackling a lot of the, the ways in which uh, government policy is a barrier to competition. The FDA in particular has been uh, really good under Scott Gottlieb in this regard. Uh, so I think an agenda around that is, is, is the way to go. And I think you're going to start to see members of Congress take the initiative on that as well as people in the executive branch. So briefly on that one, and then I'll take some more questions. I, I absolutely agree that um, we need to be focused on the things we can accomplish now, working with partners who will work with us. Um, one of the other things for conservatives to think about, you know, if we have the next two years, I would say, um, to, to start thinking about how do we want to engage if, we, when the, if, if there's an opportunity to move bigger ideas forward. And some of this is getting comfortable with talking about health care. Uh, at the end of the day, conservative ideas are that we think that people, um, empowered in the right way, can make better decisions, either themselves or their families, about their care than some nameless system. 
And the left has tried to demagogue this to, to death. We saw, we, we saw ads um, this year so basically suggesting that people who don't support more government involvement in healthcare want people who are sick to die. This is not a stretch. Uh, Bernie Sanders actually went that far and said that. The other, the other versions were strong, strong implications. Um, and, and people running out very sympathetic, heartbreaking stories um, to, to, to come forward and say the only solution for me is more government. So I think as conservatives, getting more comfortable with this material, um, you know, not, not letting our, our wonderful expert friends be the only voices out there, um, but, but being able to articulate why we think our, our approach is better um, for people across America. So I, I see you very eager, <laughs> please, <laughs> with, the, with the buttons. You, yeah. <laughs> Because a certain percentage of Americans did not have health care um, or access to health care, we have upended the entire system for all of us. How many people, what is the percentage of people that are not covered now after we have turned the system around for everybody? That's a great question. Under 10%. I really, really would like the numbers on this, the percentages on this. So the, the number has gone from just about 12.5% to about 9%. That's the effect that Obamacare had on the uninsured. Well, you know, one thing it's it's very important to understand. Uh, so, for those who couldn't hear the question, uh, the, the lady said, "We all have socialized health care because of to, to, to increase the percentage of Americans with health insurance from 88 uh, percent to roughly 92 percent or thereabouts." Uh, Medicare. Is, was, was created and is mainly today a single-payer health care program. Medicaid is basically a single-payer health care program. The VA system for health care is a single-payer health care system. It's actually even more than single-payer because it's basically socialized medicine at, at every level. So there are 100 million Americans who are on single-payer health care today, and that was before Obamacare. Uh, I, I think for, we, you know, that's why Bernie Sanders talks about Medicare for all. Because Medicare for all means single-payer health care. Because what the Democrats love about, or the left, I should say, more precisely, the left loves about Medicare is that it's a single-payer health care program. Um, and so I think, you know, you, you, I, used, I used to always do these interviews in, in 2010, 2012 timeframe where people would say, oh, Vic, do you believe that Obamacare is the Trojan horse for single-payer health care? And I always have to explain, single-payer health care has been with us for more than 50 years. Um, and we just don't notice it because it's been around for most of our lifetimes. Uh, and I think, you know, if you're concerned about single payer, the programs you have to reform are Medicaid and Medicare and the Veterans Health Administration. I, I think another way to put this is single payer in, in American healthcare is the problem, not the solution. It's not this untried thing that could transform everything. We've been trying it for a long time, and what it's done is drive up health costs in such a way that. Even now, 9% of our people cannot afford health insurance in, in, in the open market. And so the, the solution is not to double down on that. The solution is to think about how to make this product more accessible and affordable uh, to people in the larger healthcare system. What Obamacare largely did was expose to a lot more Americans a problem that uh, had largely been limited to the vulnerable, so our lower income um, people. And that is not acceptable, but it's also um, a, a challenge for us to start engaging on this and taking it seriously. More, yes, please. <clears throat> First of all, Nina, I want to say thank you for bringing up people with disabilities because 
as a person with a lifelong disability, I have to tell you that 60% of work-capable individuals' talent is being left on the bench. 60% of people with disabilities live in poverty because of this very issue. And we as Republicans have got to learn to message with compassion. And you guys are, you guys are getting it, but we've got to learn to talk to them better than the Democrats do. And I also am a lifelong conservative, and it's not the government's job to take care of me. It's the government's job to defend my borders and build my roads and pick up my trash. That's, that's what I'll say about that. But what about people with disabilities? I, we're touching it, but I'm not hearing any solutions that, are, that I can go back to the community of people with disabilities and say, here are the solutions. Because the, the solution, one of the solutions that I heard proposed was putting all the people with disabilities in their own pool. And that will collapse under its own weight because I know what it is to have a doctor look at me from the time that I was, I had a time in my life I was on Medicare. And I know what it is for one of the best specialists in the country to look at me and say, I'm sorry, I can't treat you, but I don't accept Medicare. And it's, it's wrong. We should be able to get the health care that we need. So that brings me to my thought, and I'm not saying Medicare for all, and I'm not saying Medicaid for all because heaven knows I know those don't work. But we've got to talk about a solution, and before we start saying that we care about it, we've got to have the solution ready to go and ready to message. What about Medicaid buy-in? What about what do the three, four of you think about Medicaid buy-in? Anna, do you want to take that? Sure. I mean, I I totally agree, and I my I think you have the same problems with a Medicaid buy-in that you have with the other options of a Medicare buy-in. I think in a lot of cases we're asking these programs to do too much. We continue to stretch them into ways that, that they're only doing the, the least that they can do rather than the most. And we need to get at a way where we're dealing with people to give them the most. If they're going to fall in the safety net, let's care for them with compassion and, and make sure that those programs are working for them. Let's not try to cheat the system by trying to do too much for too many. So I've, I've talked a long time about saying we need to kind of, I've alluded to it here, we really need to rethink what we're saying is quote-unquote, Medicaid, it's really not one program. We need to start talking about reforming it based on the people and the populations that it serves. And we can start removing some of the, the regulatory, statutory, all the things that are really hamstringing innovation and good ideas. Some of the states are trying to do really great things, but they can only go so far. As Ovik points out, there's only so much they can do. Because there are federal requirements, there are state requirements, we really should start looking again at looking at the patient, looking at the people themselves, and then figuring out how do we use the resources that are there to best design programs to meet those. I think that's a great idea, and I think you already see where, again, you see where the government feels like they, they know that they can't do better than the private market is in the Medicaid program. What have we seen? We've seen decades ago states were, or liberals were resistant to any kind of private insurance in the Medicaid program. They said, we can't have Medicaid managed care and can't have a private insurance running our Medicaid program. We're the government. We know what's best. Now you have even liberal states like California who are looking to say, you know what, maybe the private market and these private plans know how to manage a disabled population and understand the complexity of it better than we do. 
Um, but yet they hit resistance and they hit roadblocks. Some of it's ideological, some of it's statutorial. So we are, yeah. so we are at the end of our time. Um, and I see there, there was more enthusiasm for questions than we have time. So people will be around um, after the, the break and look forward to talking with you then. I'm going to give this back to Jennifer. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Senator Rubio is in the building and will be with us momentarily. I invite you just to take a stand where you are and stretch for a moment. Uh, if you need to, you can take an exit, but we'll be starting in two to three minutes here. So stay tuned.
I invite you to go ahead and take your seats as we're going to get started momentarily here. Thank you. Well, hello again and welcome back. Today we have been talking about an anti-poverty approach that emphasizes doing justice to human dignity through its concern for the whole person in the context of community. 
If one of our failures in addressing poverty in America has been to reduce need to the merely material, then charting a better course forward requires policymakers who have a broader and deeper vision, both of the problem and of the solution. And our next speaker is a leader who consistently approaches issues with that integrated outlook that is more true to life than so much of the status quo response has been. Senator Marco Rubio was elected to the United States Senate in 2010, and his central focus while serving in office has been to help bring the American dream back into reach for those who are anxious that it's passing them by. Senator Rubio's own family experience has made him a keen observer of what it takes to preserve and expand opportunity in America. It's also made him an optimist about tackling the challenges that face our country. And so for that reason, we're delighted to have him here today as we work for a new anti-poverty approach that does justice to human dignity. Please join me in welcoming Senator Marco Rubio. Thank you for having me here with you today, and I'm pleased to be, you know, part of this forum, which I think tackles a topic that's always of great importance. It's about overcoming poverty, and so what I want to talk about is the importance of work, but I want to sort of challenge you to think about it in different terminology uh, or in, 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 with a different mindset for a moment. Uh, it is true, Ronald Reagan once said that the best anti-poverty program is a job, and I agree with that sentiment 100%. And it is right to make work the focus of our anti-poverty efforts. Uh, we built a consensus that our social safety net should be geared toward it because it's the only sustainable path that exists out of poverty. But while we've made a lot of progress on this, we continue to strengthen, we, we have to continue to strengthen the program's orientation toward the stability of full-time work. Now, in this new economy that we have, the 21st century economy, it's not just enough that we require work. And by that I mean that sometimes when we say the best, and, I, and Reagan said it, and I agree with it 100%, but in the context of today, sometimes when people hear you say that, it almost leaves the sense that what you're telling people is you're poor because you don't want to work, or you're poor because um, you're, you're, you've had opportunities and haven't taken them. And of course, in some cases, that is true. But in many other cases, it's not. So it's important for us to understand that as we strengthen these programs and gear them towards work, it's not enough to just say, you have to go get a job. We have to find a way for people to establish a path out of poverty and a chance at the American dream by finding good jobs. And what I hope to talk about today is how we define what a good job is, because it isn't just about money. Good jobs, the kind of jobs people need, are jobs that, for example, teach and reinforce skills and that make their work more productive. Good jobs are jobs where you can work hard and do so for many years. Good jobs are jobs that will keep those people close to their families. In short, good jobs are jobs that connect the work that they do, not just to a paycheck, but to the dignity that comes with a productive life. Like the life, for example, that my parents were able to build in this country after coming from Cuba. Neither one of my parents came from any sort of financial or economic privilege. My mother was one of seven girls uh, who years later recalled that she knows her parents went to bed hungry on occasion, so they would not. 
My father lost his mother when he was about nine years of age. In fact, I believe it was on or about his ninth birthday. And at nine years of age, he could no longer go to school in Cuba, and he had to go work. And he basically worked for the rest of his life. So my parents, like most of the people that have ever lived, were raised in a society where they were largely trapped by the circumstances of their birth, meaning that you can only go as far as your connections would take you, and that no matter how good you were or how hard you worked, unless you got really lucky, you were going to struggle to get ahead. But here's where fortune played a role, because just 90 miles away, there was another country where, through hard work and perseverance, anyone including people that came from the backgrounds they came from, could get ahead. And so when they arrived here in this country on May 27th of 1956, they came here with virtually nothing, certainly no savings, no connections, and frankly barely spoke the language of it all at the time. And their first years in this country were not easy. They were difficult years. They worked long hours, often for pay that was not enough, they moved in with relatives to share the burdens and the costs, but they kept on, they kept working, and in time, and I mean within a number of years, their lives began to improve. Now here's what's interesting. My parents were never rich, they were never famous, they never owned real estate holdings, they never had a lot of money, and they fully lived the American dream. Because for them, like most people, the American dream was about achieving happiness. The happiness that has nothing to do with being wealthy. It's a happiness that's about finding work that allowed them to raise their family, to retire with dignity and security, and to, one get, and to give their children a chance to go as far as their talent and their work will take them. The jobs my parents had were largely in the service sector. My father was primarily a bartender. My mother was a cashier. She was a maid. She was a stock clerk at Kmart. And yet with these jobs my parents were able to provide for our family. They paid enough, and the costs were low in comparison to today. Stable employment, even in my father's service sector work, paid for my mother for a number of years while living in Las Vegas to stay home uh, while we were growing up. And they most certainly made enough to own a home and to raise their four children and even to help send us off to college, though they were not able to contribute as much as Sally Mae did with her loans. Um, but this version of the American dream I've just described to you, it wasn't just a product of a unique family or set of circumstances. It wasn't just a product of my family's work ethic or the higher living standards measured against where they came from. This American dream is what's defined us, especially over the last two centuries. And that American dream wasn't just about economics. Because strong families with dignified work also are a source of stability. Are the kind of stability made possible by working families all across this country. And so as we look at the state of poverty in our economy today, we really need to focus not just on the economic aspects of it, but on the impact it has when dignified work no longer allows working families to provide that sort of stability in their homes and in their communities. Because sadly, that is no longer the case for millions of Americans. To begin with, frankly, no one working those jobs today could lead the kind of life my parents lived. Certainly not in Miami, Florida, and probably not in Washington, D.C. and its vicinity. 
You simply can't own a home and retire with dignity working as a bartender and a maid. And the statistics prove this. From 1996 to 2016, the real median wage earned by men with only a high school diploma, and my father didn't even have that, declined from more than $40,000 a year to 33500 Since 1975, the share of men ages 25 to 34 earning less than 30000 rose from 25% to 41%. And while our country has made progress in reducing hiring discrimination against women, those gains have not helped offset the decline experienced by working parents with only a high school degree, not to mention less. And the result is that in recent years, this path to dignity and to prosperity has closed off, and it has left many young Americans, particularly those without advanced degrees, which is the majority of our country, on their own, to chart their own course where clear and attainable paths to meaningful and prosperous life once existed. And while families in everyday America live paycheck to paycheck, they are being lectured by the official gatekeepers of America, pundits in Washington and on Wall Street and those who dominate our large institutions, who are always telling them that things have never been better. And I would say that that's true in our bubbles of prosperity and certainly true in elite circles. If your financial assets and your wealth are tied to stocks and real estate, your life is probably better than it's ever been. Your wealth has doubled. But at the same time that that was happening, the total productivity growth, basically what Americans actually produce, has declined. So we produce less and are somehow worth more. That is the very definition of a bubble. That is not evidence of success. And so we have to chart a new course if we are to deal with not just our economy and not just with poverty, but with the very essence of our nation, our very uh, identity as a people. And that will require us to deal with life as it is today for our families. And in doing so, we can't limit ourselves to this false choice between either one, living on welfare or some government program, or on the other, a lifetime of low-paying work. That is a false choice. That is not the American dream. I believe a true choice does exist and a path forward, but we will only find it if we are willing to restore the dignity of work at the, as the core of our economic goals. Economic growth matters, GDP growth matters, all these numbers are relevant, but our goal should be restoring the dignity of work. You need economic growth to do that. You need all these other advances and, and, and movements forward to do that. But the goal of our economic policy should be to restore the dignity of work. And to truly make work the center of the anti-poverty movement in America, we need to make this dignified work available to as many people as possible. Let me start by outlining how we're not going to do it, which is a policy that the political left is now offering. It's called a universal basic income or a federal jobs guarantee. Now, with a basic income idea, they want to give everyone a government check thousands of dollars, no matter if they work or not. The job guarantee is even more interesting. The idea is to give a $15 an hour government job with full benefits to everyone who wants one, but I'm not sure exactly what they're going to do with this job in the government. Both of these are supposedly big and new ideas. They're certainly big, but they're not new. And in fact, they're doubled down on what's wrong in the first place. 
It looks and views Americans as only consumers instead of fathers and mothers and human beings. Defining life by simply how much money you make and therefore how many things you can afford to buy for yourself as opposed to the dignity that comes attached to productive work. In essence, as I said, it doubles down on what's wrong. It writes off millions of Americans simply because they currently are in low-income jobs. And that's a problem. That's not the solution. Both these ideas are basically the same thing. They would have the government pay Americans who today are low-income to be unproductive, whether it's sitting at home or whatever these millions of government jobs would be. Now, I reject those ideas because they won't work and they actually make things worse. That does not mean that the solution is just the status quo, that we basically pretend that if we just continue on the path we're on now, that economic growth alone, minus any other initiatives, will take care of everything. You cannot solve this without economic growth. But economic growth alone will not solve the architectural and structural changes that our economy is facing. And that's why I think it's important that we reject the false choice of economic growth for the few with redistribution versus economic growth for the few without redistribution. Both of these, this is a false choice. What we need instead are policies that view Americans as human beings, as men and women who cannot flourish without the sense of accomplishment and pride and self-sufficiency that comes with a good-paying job. Policies built on the realization that our people need real and productive work, not just a paycheck. Policies that help create jobs that allow them to pour themselves into a task, turn their efforts into productivity, and allow them then to use that productivity to invest in themselves, their families, and their communities. Family and community, two of the most important institutions of any society, both directly impacted by the lack of dignified work. So to achieve this, we need a clearer picture of the future of work. It's a phrase that you hear quite often. The idea is that the modern economy, of course, is uh, causing deep disruptions to American work lives, so something new must be done to help them succeed. This is all true, but it's a buzz phrase that's too often used to absolve government, to absolve business of a responsibility that's in our national interest, to build an economy that works for American workers instead of American workers who work for the economy. It's important to always remind ourselves that America is not an economy, it's a nation of people and families and communities, and that our economy works for our people, not our people for the economy. Ask someone at a think tank panel like this one what the future of work means to them, and someone, good people, smart people, but they're likely, you're going to hear about automation or job retraining, and all that's true, but it's far more than that. Because Focusing only on that sells short the problems referenced by the phrase. A dignified future of work is not a lifetime's worth of scrambling from one dying industry to another in a constant battle against the ever-shifting forces of globalization and automation. A, light, uh, a dignified future of work is not primarily an assertion of the need for the dignity of work, low-paid rootlessness, will be the future of work. As long as the future of work is not primarily a focus on the need for dignity of work, this sort of low-paid rootlessness will become the future of work de facto. And American workers will continue to be stuck in the same no-win situation. So the centrality of work in our anti-poverty programs would be helped tremendously by strengthening 
the dignity of work. It is not enough to make our anti-poverty efforts a feeder program into an economy because that doesn't provide good jobs for low-skilled Americans. As I said earlier, we need jobs that are stable, jobs that will teach workers new skills, companies that are willing to invest in their workforce, and jobs that provide for families in ways no government ever could. And so in conclusion, I wanted to offer a few ideas that I think could help build this future. Some of these are old proposals of mine that we hope to pass. Others are new ones. Some will be recognizably conservative. Others will be new. And, and I believe that they are all fundamentally conservative because the key challenge of our time is to conserve the classic American institution of dignified work. For starters, we need to get the millions of what scholars have called the missing men back into the labor force. By some counts, there are upwards of six million prime-age, able-bodied men who simply do not work and aren't even looking. It's a national crisis. It deserves an emergency solution. In addition to having policies that build an economy that create more manufacturing jobs, we should reform the earned income tax credit to more clearly reward each hour of work. And we should, reward, and we should reform anti-poverty programs like the Federal Disability Insurance Entitlement and the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, otherwise known as food stamps, to not just mandate work, but to promote it. We need to invest in the productivity of American workers, and especially those who are of low skill. The tax cuts passed last year were a good first step. We need to make the immediate deduction for capital investment called full expensing part of the permanent law so that, so that companies and employers know they can invest with confidence in the future. This provision rewards the business building new factories and high-technology equipment here in our country and will do more as a result to make Americans more competitive. We shouldn't be afraid to stand up for American workers on the international stage. That doesn't mean you have to be against free trade or open trade, but it does mean that we need to make it painful for people that are trying to impose on us bad trade and unfair trade, like China, a nation which, at the direction of the Communist Party and its government, are stealing the fruits of our innovation and our labor. Pro-work conservatives should reckon with the fact that the mismanaged opening of our economy to China has done more, much to create dependency on anti-poverty programs as these low-skilled jobs offshored there. We need to create new opportunities for working students. We should help to clear the once well-traveled path to a stable working-class life provided by technical careers. We can do this through accrediting innovative educational products like vocational degrees. Imagine for a moment a high school senior interested in becoming an, air, an air, aircraft mechanic. The possibility of low-cost online courses in the principles of engineering with a virtual tutor to supplement hands-on learning might better suit them than a traditional four-year college degree. We should make, and probably end up paying more, and certainly in the short term. We should make sure the federal government is not pushing them into oversubsidized and expensive degrees by reforming student loans and accreditation. We need to ensure those in low-skill, low-pay industries are not trapped by non-compete or non-competitive agreements. While non-compete agreements make sense in certain circumstances, many entry-level workers are surprised to find themselves unable to take their next job because of broad non-compete agreements. It is concerning, it is a concerning trend that hampers economic growth and holds individuals back from reaching their full potential. The issue merits scrutiny from those of us in favor of robust and open labor markets. So let me close by saying that 
I try to remind myself every single day that I am literally just a generation removed from poverty and, and despair. And sometimes I've wondered where I would be right now this very moment, or whether I even would have been born if there had never been in America. What kind of lives or future would my children have if this was not the land of the American dream? What if my father had been stuck working as a barback his whole life instead of making it to head bartender, which is kind of a promotion, though it may not sound that way? What kind of life would I have right now if those jobs hadn't been available at all? In all likelihood, I, I too would have been among the millions and millions of people around the world who are on the outside looking in, forever frustrated that my parents had no power or privilege and that I was therefore unable to achieve my full potential no matter how much talent one might have or how hard you're willing to work. And I think if there's anything to be concerned about with regards to all this is that a growing number of Americans and their children do not see a path today to the stability necessary for this. And it's clear the status quo isn't working. And we must try a new way, one that applies the old wisdom that we seek to conserve to the new challenges of this new era. I would close by saying that in recent days and weeks, there's been a lot of discussion about a term called nationalism. And I think some are confusing true American nationalism with a nationalism built on race or ethnicity. America is a direct rejection of ethnic and racial identity as, as, as a national organizing principle. American nationalism, real nationalism, is pride and a commitment to America, and to its identity. And our identity is not a race. Our identity is not an ethnicity. Our identity is that of a people bound together by a belief, by a powerful principle that all human beings are created equal and that they have the right to life and liberty and to pursue happiness given to them not by government, not by laws, but by their creator, God. This is our identity. And when we talk about the dignity of work, when we talk about poverty, when we talk about economic deprivation, all of these are a direct challenge to that identity. To allow every single human being the opportunity to pursue happiness as they define it, it's not just a good idea or a nice thing to do. It is at the core of who we are. It is what makes us different. It is what makes us special. It is, in essence, the purpose for America. And so what we are fighting for and fighting for these things is not simply a better economy and better jobs, but to preserve our very identity for future generations. And despite all of our differences and all of our challenges, I do believe that the overwhelming majority of Americans want us to remain that kind of country. And that's why I know that like those that came before us, we will solve this problem. It will take time and it will not be easy and it will require a lot of thinking and a lot of work, but we will solve this problem. And in the end, I know that we, in this generation, will do what those who have been here before us did, what Americans have always done. We will do whatever it takes to leave for our children an America as prosperous and as special as the one that we inherited. And so I thank you again for the opportunity to talk to you about this. Thank you.
Thank you, Senator Rubio, for reminding us who we are and what we're striving for in all our policies, but particularly as we work to fight poverty. Um, we're grateful for the intellectual energy that Senator Rubio brings to these policy questions, the ability to be able to think across so many issues, and the heart that he brings to remembering the human human uh, story at the, at the middle of all that we're talking about today. Well, we're going to transition now to our third and final session. And as we do, I... I Note that it should go without saying that as we seek to expand opportunity in America, protecting our most basic freedoms ought to be a given. Our concluding session today is going to focus on the importance of religious liberty as we work to help more Americans overcome poverty. Regrettably, we're hearing more and more often about intolerance that puts obstacles in the way of those who are striving to do well and seeking to do good for their neighbors. We're about to hear from someone who knows all about this firsthand. Kelvin Cochran grew up in Shreveport, Louisiana, and always wanted to be a firefighter. That dream came true, and he went on to an exceptionally distinguished career. He, for several decades, he served uh, with the Shreveport Fire Department, rising to the level of fire chief in that city. In 2008, he was appointed fire chief of the city of Atlanta. Then in 2009, President Obama appointed Chief Cochran to serve as United States Fire Administrator. The following year, he was reappointed uh, by the mayor of Atlanta as fire chief of that city. That same year, Chief Cochran received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Metropolitan Fire Chiefs Association. Well, amazingly, after all these achievements, the city of Atlanta fired him in 2015. Why? Because he wrote a men's devotional book on his own time in which he briefly referred to a biblical view of marriage and sexuality. Thankfully, this stunning turn of events has had a, a, an ending that has vindicated Chief Cochran, but only after a four-year legal saga. In December, a federal judge declared that he had suffered unconstitutional harms, and a settlement was reached last, last month. Kelvin Cochran is an ordained minister. He serves as, a, as chief strategic officer and chief operating officer at the Elizabeth Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia. He has uh, achieved just this year a doctorate uh, from, the, from Creighton University. Uh, he and his wife have been married for 34 years. He's a father and grandfather. Please join me in welcoming Chief Kelvin Cochran. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you to the Heritage Foundation. And thank you for inviting me to participate in this anti-poverty forum. Well, ladies and gentlemen, my journey of overcoming poverty uh, has, is rooted in faith and patriotism that was cultivated in the Deep South uh, during the peak of the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, I was born in 1960 in Shreveport, Louisiana, at Confederate Memorial Hospital. It was the hospital where poor families that could not afford health care went to have their health care needs met. At the time of my birth, I had three big brothers already. I was the fourth of the boys. Three years would pass. Two girls were added to our family. We were living in a government project in Shreveport, Louisiana, called Alameda Terrace. It was where the poor people lived. My dad left my mother for another woman. He was an alcoholic. We were poor when dad was living with us, uh, but the way we repeated in Shreveport back in those days, we went to a lower socioeconomic level called PO, just P-O. 
because we didn't have enough income to qualify for the whole word P-O-O-R anymore. My mother moved us a few blocks over in a back alley called Rear Snow Street. And it was while we were living in that back alley on Rear Snow Street in a shotgun house, which is a small house with a front room, a middle room, and a back room, with the door, the front door, and the rear door aligned with each other. They call them shotgun houses because if you open the front door and the rear door and shot a gun through it, it'll go straight through the house without touching anything. In that house, my big brothers and I, we slept all in the same bed. And the bed that we slept in was not a regular bed. It was an old box spring and mattress that was stacked on cinder blocks that had boards going across the top of them to hold the box spring and mattress up. My two little sisters slept in the same room, six kids in the same room. And their little bed is what we would call a twin-size bed, but it was also stacked on cinder blocks and had boards across the top of them. My mother had to rely on welfare and food stamps to feed the six of us. She had a job working at a dry cleaner, but it was just not enough to take care of her and our and our and her six children. Uh, I realized while we were in that alley that poverty was a terrible thing. I also realized that having a mom raising six kids was not God's design for our family. Something was always turned off. Mother never had enough money to keep all the utilities on, so something was always off. I can remember one time when we were little, my mother would tell us, keep all the pots and jugs in the house full of water. And so we'd fill up everything. Uh, and then a few days, days later, we'd come in from outside playing to try to turn on the faucets and no water would come out. Mom knew that she had received a cutoff notice and it was just going to be a matter of days before the water was turned off. At the end of the month, most of the groceries were always gone most of the time. And so we survived, listen to this, on mayonnaise sandwiches until the next set of welfare checks came. All the sodas and Kool-Aid was gone. And so if we wanted something sweet to drink, we'd take a couple of teaspoons of sugar, put it in a cold glass of water and stir it up real good. And we'd have sugar water with our mayonnaise sandwiches. Poverty was a terrible thing. At the Galilee Baptist Church at the top of the alley where my mother joined the church when we moved in that alley, there were men in that church that gave me a vision of what God intended family to actually look like. Because I saw how difficult it was on my mom. And I noticed that those wives that had husbands with their little children, they were a lot happier than my mother was. And so I would get to church early on Sunday morning to watch those guys come to church. Some of them had cars. And when they drive up in their cars and get out in their nice suits and some of them wore hats, I would look at those men and say, man, I sure wish my daddy could drive a car like that and could dress like that. And then I look at those, their wives and say, man, I sure wish my mom could wear dresses like that and could get her hair done like that. And then they get their little children out of the car that were around me and my little sister's age. And they were so much nicer dressed than we were. And I would look at those kids and say, man, I sure wish we could wear clothes like that. Those men at Galilee Baptist Church gave me a vision of what family was supposed to be like. And I wanted a family like that when I grew up. One Sunday after church, my big brothers and sisters and my little sisters and I, we were lying on the front porch of our shotgun house in the front room of our shotgun house 
watching a little black and white TV with a coat hanger sticking out of the top of it, wrapped in some aluminum foil, and we heard sirens in our alley. When we opened the front door, right in front of our house was a Shreveport Fire Department fire truck. And when I looked at those firefighters that day, I looked at my mom and my big brothers and my little sisters, and I said, I want to be a fireman when I grow up. All the time in our community when we were growing up, grown-ups would ask us, what do you want to be when you grow up? I never hesitated when they asked me. I would say, I don't want to be poor. I want a family, and I want to be a fireman. And this is what my mom and the community taught us when we were growing up in the early 60s. They told us consistently, it was a community consensus. They said, if you believe in and have faith in God, if you go to school and work hard and get a good education, if you respect grown-ups and treat other children like you want to be treated, all of your dreams are going to come true. Well, that got my attention, and I focused on those four principles all of my life. When I was growing up in Shreveport, Louisiana, I used to go to the fire stations and visit the firefighters. When there was a fire truck riding down the street, I would follow the fire truck down the street to see where they were going. And in 1981, because I believed in and had faith in God, because I continued to go to school to get a good education, because I respected grown-ups and treated the other children like I wanted to be treated, all of my, my dream to become a firefighter actually came true. Firefighters made a little bit above minimum wage at the time, and so I had a, a better job than the job I had working at El Chico's restaurant. My mother, when we were growing up, made it a, it was just a standard for her that she wanted to get off of welfare and food stamps as soon as possible. So as soon as my big brothers and I were able to get a job, we had to get a job. My first job was a, a paper boy. I was selling an African-American newspaper that was in Shreveport called the Shreveport Sun. And because I respected the grown-ups in the neighborhood and treated the other children like I wanted to be treated when I was selling the Shreveport Sun, God promoted me to another job. I began to be a paper boy throwing the Shreveport Journal when I got out of school in the afternoon. And because I continued to apply those principles of believing in God and getting a good education and respecting grown-ups and treating the other children like I wanted to be treated, God gave me a job selling the Shreveport Times. It was a promotion. And then after that, because I continued to apply those principles, ultimately, my dream came true. I became a firefighter in 1981. My dream to become a family man actually came true. I, I married my fourth grade girlfriend <laughs> when I became a firefighter. I married my fourth grade girlfriend and uh, it took me a while to find her. I knew she was the one that God wanted me to marry. Uh, and so after a, a long search, I called her on the phone one night when I finally got her number, asked her to let me come over. She said, you can't come over. I have a boyfriend. So I told her that God told me she was supposed to be my wife and we'd have a wonderful life. We have beautiful kids and she'd never want for anything. And so she said, my boyfriend will be at work tomorrow night. <laughs> so I went over the next night. And proposed to her that night. Six months later, we got married. And last June, we celebrated 36 years of holy matrimony. I have the family of my childhood dreams. My three children, 
Tiffany, Kelton and Camille. Tiffany is 34. She is a nonprofit executive that works in downtown Washington, D.C. on First Street. Uh, still single. I'm still recruiting a husband for her. <laughs> uh, my son, Kelton, is 32. He's a captain in the Marine Corps. He's a single dad. I'm still recruiting a wife for him. And my daughter, Camille, is uh, 30 years old. She works for a healthcare company in Atlanta, and she's engaged to be married. My children have never known what it's been like to have to eat mayonnaise sandwiches or drink sugar water. They've never known what it's like for the utilities to be turned off or to have to take the, take baths in the same water because the water was turned off. My family, my generation, my children, the first generation of our family where all three kids have college degrees. All I'm trying to say to you is that the American dream is still possible for families. What, what caused it to happen in my family? It was a matter of faith, and it was a matter of patriotism. My mother fed the dreams of her children. She made it a point to challenge us to dream big dreams when we were kids and to have faith in God. Jane Cochran's, there are many, many Jane Cochran's still existing in the United States of America who have poor, who are living in poverty, who are single moms with children who have dreams for their children. Back in the day, our family would have been called, and even today, we're called at-risk families. You know what I've discovered, ladies and gentlemen? An at-risk family is a family that does not have a vision for the future of their children. Has nothing to do with race, has nothing to do with socioeconomic levels. If a family in America does not foster the dreams of their children and have a vision for a better future for their, their children, that family is an at-risk family in the United States of America. My family was not an at-risk family because of the faith and patriotism of my mom. Not only my family uh, are not experiencing poverty and welfare and food stamps, neither one of my brothers and neither one of my sisters because of faith and patriotism in our country. It takes family. It takes community. And what I've learned, it also takes fatherhood. Dads make the difference in a family. I believe that we can overcome poverty in our country if we all as Americans embrace our purpose, we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. It ends with a charge that I would charge each of us as Americans to ordain and establish this Constitution to overcome poverty in the United States of America. Thank you for inviting me. An amazing testimony to uh, the effort to do well and to do good and the obstacles that can get in the way. We're going to transition now to a panel that will be discussing the importance of respecting uh, religious freedom for uh, the faith-based organizations to have the freedom to 
do well and to do good to their neighbors. Um, we, uh, moderating this panel will be my colleague Emily Gao. Uh, Emily is the director of the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society here at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, she's a graduate of Harvard Law School, worked for uh, Beckett Law uh, that defends religious liberty clients, and then went on to work at the State Department on international religious freedom. She's going to be moderating a panel discussion uh, with three ministries that are involved in fighting poverty in different facets of it. And to introduce, introduce that panel, we've got a short video that will get you acquainted with these ministries' work. So uh, please direct your attention to uh, the screens as we watch the video on these three ministries and Emily in the panel. And I'll join me on stage here. Well, the loss was substantial, to say the least, into the hundreds and thousands of dollars uh, overnight. Pastor Jorge Cardenas and his wife lost a lot during Hurricane Harvey. The church on the rock sustained extensive damage due to flooding, and the couple's home was even worse off. When recovery work began, the community was there to help. What we saw was just neighbors helping neighbors. People volunteered time, money, and resources, helping with every piece of the cleanup effort. Before Harvey, there was discrepancies of people dealing with ethnicity, color, faith, all kinds of issues that separate us. But then after Harvey, um, there was no walls of division. We're all in this together. Good morning. Delighted to welcome you to the next panel. As that short video showed, faith-based aid organizations provide irreplaceable help to our society. <laughs> Not only is the value of faith-based aid to our country over $303 billion per year, they provide three distinctives that the state cannot. First, their view of the whole person. The Downtown Hope Center in Anchorage, Alaska, knows that helping homeless women isn't just about giving them a shelter, a roof over their head, warmth, and a meal. It's about helping them spiritually and relationally. Their religious mission, child welfare agencies are struggling to take care of the 437,500 children in our foster care system, which is growing every day because of the opioid crisis. Miracle Hill Ministries in South Carolina 
is uniquely suited to recruit foster parents because of their Christian identity. They have connections with churches, and they have become the number one recruiter of um, Category 1 foster families in South Carolina. Third, their ability to bring the community together. Church of the Rock Katy in Texas not only provides church services to their parishioners, they also provide ballet classes, tennis, um, and music classes, and they are partnered with the Houston Food Bank. What these groups do is um, intrinsically related to their religious mission, but we're finding that government officials across the country are putting obstacles in, their ability, in the way of their ability to serve because of their religious beliefs and their religious identity. This spring, the Anchorage Equal Rights Commission began investigating the Downtown Hope Center because they decided to protect the women in their care by refusing entry to a man who identifies as a woman. When he came to the center visibly injured, they sent him to the nearby hospital in a taxi. But in order to keep the women in their care safe and to protect their privacy, they refused entry to him. But nevertheless, he filed a complaint and the state um, opened an investigation. Today, we'll hear the latest from Sherry Laurie, Executive Director of the Hope Center, and her attorney from Alliance Defending Freedom, Jonathan Scruggs. This year, the state of South Carolina threatened to revoke the license of Miracle Hill Ministries because they placed children with Christian families. An organization that represents 1,000 Jewish rabbis, the Coalition for Jewish Values, voiced their solidarity and support for Miracle Hill because they recognize that when religious organizations have the freedom to be religious, to be Jewish or Christian, that's when we have true pluralism and diversity. Across the country, states like Massachusetts, California, Illinois, Pennsylvania, New York, and Washington, D.C. are shutting down faith-based agencies because they follow their religious beliefs, including placing children with a married mother and father. Today, we'll be fortunate to hear from Reed Lehman, the executive director of Miracle Hill. And finally, who can forget Hurricane Harvey that devastated the city of Houston in 2017? Parishioners of the Church of the Rock, Katy, lost their homes and the church was flooded. But the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, had a rule that denied assistance to houses of worship, even though FEMA often partners with houses of worship to distribute aid. First Liberty Institute sent a letter to FEMA and held a press conference. And as a result of this and other efforts, FEMA changed its policy and Congress amended the Stafford Disaster Relief Assistance Act to put houses of worship on equal footing with secular nonprofits. Today we'll hear from Pastor Jorge Cardenas. We will all lose when the state interferes with the ability of faith-based organizations to provide aid for our neediest neighbors. And all of our society grows stronger when these organizations are free to serve according to what they believe. Please join me in welcoming our panelists. So hopefully you can hear me here. Um, my name is Sherry Laurie, and I'm the executive director of the Downtown Soup Kitchen Hope Center in Anchorage, Alaska. 
Uh, we've been, I'm going to just start off telling about us, and then John will tell about the legal part of it. Um, we've been in business for about 30 years. It started 30 years ago in a little tiny house. A pastor, a Baptist pastor and his wife, wanted to take care of the homeless in Anchorage and share the love of God with them by giving them a handout and eventually a hand up. So 30 years later, um, we built a new building and we really started looking at the hand up portion. In that, um, we serve, our, our mission is in the name of Jesus to, I'm sorry, <laughs> inspired by the love of Jesus, we offer support, sustenance, skills, and shelter to transform lives. And so each of those components has played into the hand up portion. Um, we have the, the support we offer. We have a shower house where the homeless are able to come and shower. We do about 60 showers a day. We have clothing facility. Um, we feed four to 500 people a day um, in our kitchen. The, we serve uh, 50 women a night in our shelter. And then we have a culinary school, and that's the skills that literally transform a life. Um, the shelter was started in 2015 because there was a need in our city. Um, there was another shelter that was men and women, and in that shelter they were uh, combined together. Uh, it wasn't really separated too much, and some of the women were being raped and uh, abused. So out of that need, we were not designed to be a shelter, but we went ahead and said, okay, we'll, we'll open a shelter. So we have 50 women coming up every night. They now stay there in a day shelter. Um, we've combined it with our culinary program, and our culinary program, um, in that program we have, uh, it's a 14-week course, and it's for homeless, um, people coming out of incarceration, um, and, and working poor. Uh, they, if somebody's on food stamps, they qualify. The, um, the ones that come out of the DOC that are coming out of incarceration, they're act actually still pre-released, so they're staying in a halfway house. Um, and they come up, and that, that school prepares the meals for the women's shelter. Um, the bakery is established, we established that in 2016, and that is for the women in the shelter to have a place where they can go that's safe during the day. Um, they make baked goods, and we sell them out to the community. Several little stores carry them. And it's, it's become a place of just where the ladies have community, and they're no longer in an unsafe environment. Um, the bottom line of the whole thing is that our, our motto that we always say is hope restored, hearts renewed, lives transformed. And that hope is what we give them when we offer these, these programs. And I like what Senator Rubio said, that it's the jobs. And so we've really um, stopped focusing so much on the handout, but really begun to focus more and more on the hand up and coming alongside them. But that, that can only be done with the transforming love of Jesus. Christ. And, and that's what our staff, we're all believers, and we work together. We pray together every morning. Um, we have prayer teams that come in and pray for our guests and our students. So it's very focused on introducing them to Jesus Christ and then calling them into their destiny, calling them to who he created them to be. Um, we've had several times, oh, I'll just give you a story. We have one gal that came in when the shelter first opened. Her um, name was Deja, very large woman. Um, she'd been living out in the woods for quite some time. Um, she'd been kicked out of the other shelter for some issues. She was a meth addict and spice. I don't know if you remember the big spice epidemic. She was part of that. Uh, she came to us on a Saturday. We weren't open for showers. We are serving lunch. But she was such a mess. I just it, it could barely talk. So I sent her into the showers and did her laundry for her. She had a huge bag full of soiled clothes. Invited her to stay in our shelter. 
And she was scared to, but she decided to stay. So she continued to stay, and about a week later was when we opened our bakery, and so I invited her into the bakery. And the first day it was like, oh my goodness, the, the bakery was pretty basic. They were making cookies. So she went in there, and it was a real experiment, but she and about 10 other women came from the shelter into that. Um, so about nine months later, she had really learned the scale well, and she had, she had come to know the Lord. She'd be, she, we had prayed with her a lot, and she accepted Jesus Christ as her Savior. She started going through a lot of healing. Um, we were able to hire her. And she now lives next door, comes to work every day, and she is actually one of, she's the baker's assistant, and she is teaching our new women that come into the shelter and, and promoting for them. So that is totally, that's a life transformed. And that's, that's what we seek to do. Um, the community has been impacted by us. It's been really interesting. Um, we actually have police officers that come down and ask us, what do you do different? Why is it so different here? And, you know, the only answer is that we pray and that we seek God's guidance. And, um, but it has actually even come up at assembly meetings. I attend assembly meetings, and people in the community have said, well, why can't you do it, and why can't you sort this stuff out? Look what Hope Center does. Um, and I've had police officers many times thank me for that. But they actually came, a group of them once, and asked us to, could you go down and train this, this other shelter in what you do? And it was kind of, that's a difficult thing, because... It really comes from the Lord, and unless they are willing to seek the Lord, it's not going to happen. We, we pray for peace every day over our place. So um, I'm going to let John tell you a little bit about the case that we're involved in right now, and then I'll finish up. Sure. Thanks, Sherry, for sharing all that. And just briefly, I'm talking to her lawyer because one of, these, uh, because one of the challenges that Hope Center is facing is this ongoing litigation matter where Sherry actually can't even talk about this matter in public uh, because it would potentially violate the law. So as was noted, in January, a biological man uh, sought access to the shelter. He was inebriated and actually physically injured because he had been in a fight. And so Sherry uh, you know, explained that to him and, and paid for his cab to the hospital so he could get a medical care. But after that, uh, that biological male filed a complaint with the Anchorage uh, Equal Rights Commission. And Anchorage has been investigating the Hope Center for violating its local, what we call SOGI laws, sexual orientation, gender identity law. It's been uh, investigating the Hope Center uh, since January, even though the Hope Center hasn't violated the law. In effect, uh, the city is pressuring the Hope Center to admit biological males into their women's only shelter which is very problematic because, as Sherry mentioned, uh, the women in the shelter come from a background of sex trafficking, uh, physical abuse, emotional abuse. Uh, in fact, in, we ended up having to file a lawsuit in federal court in, in uh, Anchorage to try to protect the Hope Center. And we had numerous women uh, in the center, in the Hope Center, file uh, affidavits saying, I am afraid I cannot be forced to sleep next to a male at night, three feet away, to undress uh, next to a male because I had been raped. I had been assaulted by my ex-boyfriend. I had been sex trafficked. Uh, some of the women even testified that they would rather sleep in the woods uh, than expose themselves to this potentially dangerous situation. So that obviously is a humongous barrier to what the Hope Center does if they're forced to put women in this dangerous situation and to abandon what their beliefs are about men and women. 
So Sherry, really quickly, do you have anything you'd like to, to add to what the Hope Center does here? Um, yeah, it, it, like he said, we have a lot of women that are they're severely abused. They've been through sex trafficking, domestic violence, um, many, many things that, that really are unspeakable. I don't think most of the population has any idea of the tortures these women go through. So to expose them to having a man come into the shelter um, is just, but above that though, because we are faith-based, we believe every human being, no matter what they choose to identify it, has dignity and has respect. They're created in the image of God. And so we do everything we can. This, um, we offer them showers. We offer them food. We offer them anything that we can, short of coming into the shelter at this moment. But um, so... Thank you, Sherry. Oh, thanks, yeah. Thank you, Sherry yeah. and John. Um, Reed? I'd like to recognize uh, a few people with me in the audience today. Uh, Rabbi Menken from Coalition from Jewish Values has been very helpful in our in our cause. Uh, Brenda Parks is, uh, if you'd raise your hand, Brenda uh, is the head of our foster care division and a tremendous leader for us in Greenville. And then Miles Coleman over here has been a, a tremendous coach and counsel for our for our um, issues. I'd like to talk a little bit about Miracle Hill at, in Greenville, South Carolina how our faith informs our values, how we contribute to the community, and specifically how this challenge that we faced has affected us. Uh, first of all, our faith motivates and informs our service. Uh, the clear teaching of Scripture from Jesus and from the Old and New Testament compels us to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and care for the orphan and show compassion to the least of these. So we're not a social service organization with Christian roots. We're a joyous community of Christ followers that provide social services as a part of worship and of showing our faith. We serve everyone in need, no matter what their background, religious, ethnic background, no religion background. We're glad to serve anyone who needs our help. We partner with anyone, regardless of their background, race, Jewish, Muslim, Christian, non-Christian. Uh, anyone can volunteer with us, can sort clothing, can provide meals, can even do tutoring. But for those that are in a position of spiritual influence, for our key leaders, and we say also our foster families, we choose to partner with those who share our faith. Uh, how can we share the love of God if the people that we're partnering with don't know the love of God? And so we think that's um, a federally protected right under the First Amendment. But more than that, it just makes sense that... Uh, that we, that we work together most closely with people in spiritual influence who share our faith. That works really well uh, for the cause of children in need. That South Carolina is a thousand families short of the children that are needed, of the families that are needed to care for foster children. And because of our Christian faith, we have a wide open door to, uh, to a wide variety of Christian churches. And we're the number one recruiter of foster families in our state because of that wide open door. We know that with government funding often comes uh, restrictions that can hinder faith. And we have never sought and we don't uh, use any federal funding. Uh, the only government funding we receive is a partial reimbursement from the Department of Social Services for the foster families we support and the children they place in our care. I'm aware that there may be some federal pass-through funds there, but we've been very careful to stay away from federal funds. And the DSS reimbursements are the only uh, outside government funding that we receive. Um, 
Miracle Hill, we believe, is a strong corporate citizen in our community. We exist to connect people who care with people who desperately need to know that someone cares. So we help thousands of homeless adults each year move toward productive lives and stability. We serve hundreds of children each year and see a huge majority of them returning, either adopted if they cannot return to their homes, or returning to their birth families under improved situations. Our vision is that 10 counties of our upstate South Carolina have these services, both for adults and for children, and we can't do that alone. Uh, and uh, so we eagerly partner with any other organization that's willing to provide those services. We share food, we share counseling, we share expertise. In the last four years, we've devoted a year's worth of staff salary, $30,000 in direct contributions, and hundreds of, of um, hours of um, consulting and assistance to other organizations not related to Miracle Hill because they're doing the work that we do. And we've raised, created capital campaigns that have raised $3 million in capital funding for them, added 72 permanent beds for the homeless, and helped launch them to a more stable function. We operate a key leadership development program primarily for our staff leaders, but we invite other nonprofit leaders in the community to come at no charge. And today, 10 of the other nonprofit agencies in our community are being led by people who graduated from our leadership development program. In 2014, we were instrumental in bringing the community together to uh, address a destructive tent city of the homeless that had grown to more than 130 people. Within nine months, with great cooperation and relationships with funders and other agencies and government, we closed that down, offered every resident a safe and, and, and healthy place for them to stay without any controversy. And then immediately after, we worked with the community and the community created a white paper about what should happen with the homeless next. That is still the blueprint for our city and for the upstate there in South Carolina. Um, so let me tell you a little bit about our challenge uh, with foster care. In January, the Department of Social Services told us that if we did not uh, change from admitting only Christian families into our foster care system, that our license would be closed, that we would not be allowed to serve. Our program supports 232 families providing that care. Our state is 1,000 families short. That would put more than 200 children back into the foster care system and disrupt a number of, of families. And there have been some pretty strong costs uh, to us for not being willing to make that change. Our, uh, I had retired. I've served there for many years. I'd retired as CEO. The new CEO was unprepared for a challenge of this magnitude. And so we lost our CEO. Many of our foster families, uh, knowing of, of the threat to our license, uh, discontinued serving with us, and others chose not to come and serve with us. Some of our foster care staff, believing that their jobs were in jeopardy, and all of our staff serve at a sacrifice, uh, discontinued serving with us, and some have chosen not to come. Um, we have uh, devoted more than 200 hours of legal services to this effort. We've devoted hundreds of hours of staff time and, and volunteer time to working with the governor and with the legislature and uh, with other regulators to try to come to an issue of resolving this. Uh, national news outlets have picked up the story, and we've been um, 
unfairly portrayed as discriminating and, uh, and hating uh, other groups, uh, Jewish groups, uh, non-Christian groups, uh, same-sex couples. Um, we don't hate anybody. And we would like any qualified person to be able to provide those services in our state. We only ask that our religious freedoms be protected. And it has been said that, um, well, maybe you shouldn't be able to do that with government funds. For most of the history of this program, more than 27 years, we did it without any government funds. We only went and asked for some help when South Carolina was desperate and we were stuck at 120 families because we didn't have the resources to go further. And so those reimbursements came at about half of the cost of our services. But let's say that's a given. Let's say maybe we shouldn't be able to hold those government funds. We're not fighting for the government funds. We're fighting for our existence. We have been told that unless we give up our policy of recruiting fit Christian families, we are not allowed to exist. We've just gone right past the funding part. And because it's received publicity, we've received hate mail, hate postings on Facebook, phone, angry phone calls, angry letters, uh, threats to burn down our administrative offices and our foster care offices. Our board members two weeks ago received pornographic uh, letters threatening their families and their, and their uh, safety. And we've taken our board member information off the website. Um, and because um, this consumes time, it's not only direct costs, but also opportunity costs. If we're working on this issue, we don't have time to recruit foster families or to raise money for our operations or for other things. We estimate that it's been about half a million dollars in indirect costs, direct costs, and opportunity costs for this, for this fight. So it's not just a theoretical issue for us. It's something that, it's something that affects um, the core of our existence. Having said that, we are not prepared to change. This is not just a battle for Miracle Hill. Uh, this is a battle for all the other religious organizations in South Carolina that have kept their head down because they're going to wait and see what happens with us before they, uh, to, to know whether there will be closed. And for organizations, some larger than us in other states, that they have not come to the attention of the authorities yet, but they know that if our effort fails, that their efforts are in jeopardy as well. Thank you so much, Reed. Um, I should mention a couple of members of Congress have also taken up your fight. Uh, Senator Mike Enzi and Representative um, uh, Representative uh, Mike Kelly mm -hmm. have introduced the Child Welfare Provider Inclusion Act that would protect faith-based agencies across the country and their ability to continue serving children, birth mothers, adoptive and foster families according to their religious beliefs and identity. Thank you so much. Pastor Jorge. Thank you, and I, I want to express my gratitude especially to um, the Heritage Foundation and also to Leighton Watts from First Liberty who invited me over here. And I'm thinking through the process of Church on the Rock, Aiden, what we went through after Harvey. And again, our mission statement comes out of the Bible, Matthew 7:24, which is very interesting because it says that anyone that hears my word and applies it, I compare it to a man of wisdom who built his house upon the rock. Rain may come, floods may come, winds may come, and they will not fall because it was built upon the rock. So imagine having the test like Harvey afterwards, where our building flooded, our, our campus flooded. We have a preschool, 
and our, and our campus, which is second to none. We have an international school where we teach kids French, Spanish, and English. And we have many single mothers that bring their kids over to our church. They feel secure about having their kids there. Um, in addition to that, we offer counseling sessions, which are free of charge. Uh, I have a master's in counseling and also in education. So I spent a lot of time with couples. Um, uh, recently, after Harvey, we had a couple that came in and they were about to call it quits. Um, they're a blended family. Uh, he has one of his own, she has one of her own, and then they have two of their own. So just imagine the whole drama uh, just for the blended family that, that came into this uh, situation. So uh, after therapy, many sessions, uh, four, four or five sessions, they made a decision to reconcile their differences. And I'm sure that not only they're happy, the kids are happy, and I'm sure that the state of Texas is also happy because they're still going to stay in the payroll or paying taxes instead of being into asking for help. So this is where we have a, a tendency sometimes to not value a, uh, a, a faith-based community like a church, um, and we have to, it's hard to put a tag price on this type of care and giving people hope when they have no hope when they come into our premises. So um, again, if we had closed our building, maybe this family would have been already divorced. I don't know. It's hard to say. But what I want to say is that not just this family, but many families like so, we help people. Um, I live in a community where Katy, Texas is known for having so many religious uh, faith-based communities more than banks. And when Harvey came about, uh, everybody pitched in, and we became one solid community at that moment. Uh, all barriers were broken, all kinds of barriers, and um, everyone was just helping neighbor, helping neighbor. And then we had this issue where we could not get funding um, because we were a religious-based nonprofit, so we couldn't get any funding or any help from FEMA. And that's where uh, First Liberty came on board on our side. They did a press release in our campus uh, right after we were fixing it and making it um, uh, rehab. And they came on board, and um, the press came, and then they helped us out uh, with our case. And eventually, we were approved uh, by FEMA to begin the process of mitigation uh, in our building. So I'm thankful for the community, and I'm thankful for the fact that um, a faith-based community is priceless for the community. We're the second family. Uh, uh, we provide so many alternatives um, to keep family safe and secure. When um, they come to our, our campus, they come with all kinds of issues. And thank goodness that we have answers that have been over centuries been a benefit to families. So um, as a church, uh, we're glad that we're back in business, that we're back, that we're back helping people out. And, um, and like the chief of fire chief that was earlier on, uh, talking about there's a place where people have dreams and hopes, and our community is mainly Hispanic. So I do have this uh, wonderful community I'm trying to help um, to become good citizens, 
and to love God and also love country. Thank you so much, Pastor Jorge. I think each of you have shown us uh, that your contributions are um, priceless and irreplaceable. There's no way the state could ever replace the kind of work that you do. So thanks to each of you for your perseverance and your service. Um, and now I'd like to uh, welcome Jennifer Marshall back to make closing comments. Our panel, and we'll have you stay there until we conclude the, the session today. Well, it's very clear that if we want to maintain and expand opportunity in America, we need to preserve our most basic freedoms, religious freedom, the freedom of association, the freedom of speech, and so on. Uh, the, this, is, this is basic, and we need to partner with all of you if we're going to uh, be able to launch a new approach to fighting poverty in America that does justice to human dignity. Um, I hope that you've enjoyed the conversations that we've had today on health care, the dignity of work, the importance of these faith based ministries efforts in civil society. As you can tell, this only scratches the surface. There are so many other topics that we need to address to effectively uh, approach the questions of poverty today. And so this is a conversation that will be ongoing. We've had this event annually. We want to increase the frequency of the conversations that we're having on anti-poverty issues. So please stay tuned for announcements of those. Uh, if you did enjoy what you heard today and want to share it with others, the live feed of this will be archived and will be available online at heritage.org in about 24 hours or sooner. And we invite all of you to enjoy uh, the lunch that's served for us outside in the foyer uh, and uh, to, to once again thank everyone who's presented here today. Thank you for being here.